We're going to pick up our reading in Mark, back in chapter 7. Mark 7, and we're going to start at verse 14. Mark 7 and 14 reads as follows. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man, that's outside a man, that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile a man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all uh, meats, all foods. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Well, having uh, rebuked the Pharisees for allowing their tradition to undermine the, the very commandments of God himself, Jesus turns to address the people in general. He explains it's not what things you consume that defile you spiritually. Instead, a man is defiled by the things that emerge from his heart. And I remember the heart is used in scripture to represent a man's inner being. The heart is the core of a person. This is where his mind, his emotions and conscious, his conscience sorry, are said to, to exist. Jesus and the disciples go back to this house. It's likely the place where Jesus was living at the time. He asks him for clarification on what he's just said. And we see that Jesus expresses his surprise. They don't understand. I try to encourage people to be patient with those who don't understand something. If you think something's obvious, it's easy to get irritated when another person just fails to, to grasp it. Now, needless to say, Jesus wasn't being unfair to the disciples. He wouldn't have rebuked them for not understanding, say, something about particle physics. This is different. The lack of understanding Jesus picks up on from time to time is not due to lack of teaching, but rather a dullness 
coming from a sinful heart. And the same goes for us. The Lord won't expect any of you to understand what supralapsarianism means. But you've heard the gospel. If there's any lack of understanding in a message as simple as the gospel one, it's due to spiritual blindness caused by sin. We know that apart from a work of God, the world will not truly understand the gospel being presented to them, but they are to be blamed. Let's go further. They're to be blamed for not even perceiving the existence and glory of God in the creation around them. Jesus then gives a sigh of disappointment and proceeds then to explain a bit further. The disciples now are so lacking in understanding, Jesus has to go into a fairly crude level of detail. He reminds them the things they eat, they come out the other end. The end of verse 19 talks of purging all meats, uh, that's all foods. I, I can't say how this should be translated honestly, but it could mean that no foods are now unclean. You might think it was not at all unreasonable for the disciples to be confused. They come from a religious background that taught certain foods are unclean. But Jesus had been teaching them the true nature of the Mosaic law. And so they should have paid more attention and, and meditated on the teachings. Think about what the law said regarding defilement and cleansing. We're told in the New Testament, of course, it was never possible the blood of animals could take away sin. So the cleansing those sacrifices brought uh, were merely of a ritual nature. It's the same in the case of eating forbidden fruit foods. It was important that they didn't eat things which God had forbidden. But the defilement they caused was also of a ritual nature. Now, we, we don't mean that these laws were then pointless. Ritual uncleanness and cleansing were meant to teach the people about God's attitude to sin. Yet, alongside these types of law were real and spiritual principles. The people sinned, and this brought spiritual defilement. They were meant to see past the provisions for sin in the form of sacrifice and see the future redeemer pictured by them. Jesus gives the disciples a list. It's a list of some of the types of sin that come from a man's heart. It's things like these, he tells them, that truly defile a man. You see how he, he continues to impress on the people the need to think differently. At every opportunity, he turns the religious uh, ideas of the day on their head. Um, Matthew's Gospel, I note, uh, also contains an account of the same uh, episode, although he abbreviates the list. He includes 
He focuses on sins that uh, are more outward. Um, th- there are lots of lists in, in, the, in the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament, in fact, uh, lists of uh, examples of sins. And we're not, we're not to think of them as any one of them as being definitive. Each one of them really is a, uh, a sort of a sample, if you like, of types of sin that men commit. So Jesus here is it really he's he's come up with a list that he think is appropriate for that occasion. Well, I want to work through the list, and we only have time really to spend a minute or two on each item because there's quite a few. But I want to work through them in the following way. For each one, I'd like to think how generally the word is understood in the world today. I want to then look at just one example of how men and women might transgress that particular, might commit that sin. And thirdly, I'd like to then also choose an, an example of how a Christian might fall foul of it as well. So let's make a start. So the first item we're looking at is evil thoughts. The, the Greek word behind this, uh, it indicates a sort of internal conversation going on. People reason within themselves and and often what comes out of that internal dialogue is a thoroughly evil thought. Bad thoughts then. An example today would be con men. Con men. They sit at home thinking how they can take advantage of, say, elderly people. They calmly draw up a plan in their mind of how they can talk their way into a pensioner's home by pretending to be from United Utilities or the phone company or something, uh, in order to steal money. Uh, Sometimes they're life savings. It's devastating. And I just wonder where the consciences are of these people as they're planning these things. What about us? How might we commit this sin? Well, doubting God, for one, if you've ever questioned any of God's promises, you certainly had evil thoughts. Doubt yourself, Christian, but never doubt God. He's not like us. He is faithful. The second item on the list is adulteries. The words mostly used to refer to sinful Relationships entered into by married people. In our culture, in England, we might say so and so has been carrying on with the guy down the street, say. But it's not just about secret liaisons in hotels. Think about the modern phenomenon of the dating site on the internet. Married people for different reasons, often decide to go on these websites, acting as if they were single. I don't know, maybe they want to see if they're still attractive to the opposite sex, or the same sex. 
in some cases. And in a way, it doesn't really matter whether they follow through with with the with the um, they follow through the conversation to, to something more to something more uh, uh, substantial. It, whether it goes only as far as flirting or results in the outward act, their hearts are already immersed in adultery. The world makes light of flirtation, whereas God sees it as it is, the first stage in adultery, which he utterly condemns. The Christian should remember that adultery can be of a spiritual kind also. We're said to be married to God. So if our affections wander to anywhere but God, we commit adultery. Be careful not to love the things of this world. If you love this world or the things of this world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. And what's more, you've committed spiritual adultery. The third one is fornications. <clears throat> the Greek word used here is pornia. Pornia. I can't even pronounce it. Um, but it's where we get our English word pornography from. But fornication covers all kinds of sexual immorality. It's commonly used today to describe sex before marriage. And this sin is common and, and widely accepted today in the world. If you choose to watch TV as I do, you, you understand all this storytelling is of the world. So we, we each put up with some degree of sinful behaviour in, in the dramas and the comedies. And most of us have a line after which we will say, that's enough, we we'll, we'll have to turn that off. Now, most in my family are fans of the, uh, a sitcom from the 1990s called Friends. I'm sure some of you will, will have seen it. It's about a gang of 30-somethings uh, in, in America. And the, the, the people are, are created, the characters are created to be endearing to the viewer. By the world's standards, they make great friends. And they, they show a whole raft of virtuous behaviours like uh, love, compassion, thoughtfulness for each other, a sense of justice and so on. Yet all of them quite happily engage in sexual liaisons outside marriage. The danger then is that viewers become desensitised to this behaviour. And I think it's partly due to these types of programmes the world, for the most part, thinks fornication is quite acceptable. God, however, has not changed his mind. It's still a sin. Christians, too, can get entangled in sexual sins. I'll mention just one today, pornography. I use this as an example because it's not spoken of much. Just so no one's under any illusion, there are Christian men and women, including deacons, elders and pastors of churches, who regularly view pornographic material. Let me give you some facts and figures. Most parents believe 
their children would never do anything like this. In a survey, three quarters of all parents were convinced their children had never used pornography. Of the children of those parents, more than half had in fact viewed pornographic material on the internet. That's boys and girls. Among married people, regular users are three times more likely to go on and commit adultery. So this really does wreck entire families. But it gets worse. In a survey in the States, more than half of all respondents who class themselves as born-again Christians admitted to regular use of pornography. Now that sounds exceptionally high, does it not? It's because it's not the whole picture. It's not, it's not untrue, but people get to define you know, uh, what, what they are. You're not a Christian because you say you're a Christian, obviously. Now it turns out that there's quite in-depth research done here. It turns out the more committed a professing Christian is, the less likely they are to commit this sort of sin. This research showed that where someone's profession was costly, now what we mean by that is someone who gives of themselves their time of their money their emotion and so on so where, where men and women regularly subjected themselves to the ministry of god's word regularly prayed with the brethren the percentage the percentage of people who use pornography then falls dramatically but well, would you believe it god was right all along if we walk in his ways, if we walk in the Spirit, and if we listen to his word preached, we shall not fulfil the lusts of the flesh. Here's the fourth one. Murders. Most people in society would define murder as killing an innocent person. And of course it includes that. But for all the expressions of grief and horror coming from society in response to innocent people being killed, we hear virtually nothing from them for the lives ended in the nation's abortion clinics. In the week ending 2nd of October this year, there were 321 deaths in the UK attributed to COVID-19, 321. Almost all the victims were elderly and had serious underlying health conditions. In the same week, more than 4,000 unborn children were dismembered and discarded in bins in abortion mills around our country. 20 of these little lives will have been ended in the time it takes you to listen to this sermon. How can God bless a country that is so cruel? Genuine Christians, of course, are generally not killers. But I'm sure you remember Jesus' teaching that hating someone 
is like killing them. That might, that might sound uh, extreme to, to an outsider, you know. But uh, hatred for another is simply murder in embryonic form. And I'd say it's not at all uncommon for Christians to hate others, even other believers. I counsel you who believe to think on this. The word of God makes it clear if you hate your brother Christian, you don't belong to God. It doesn't mean if you've succumbed to this particular sin, your salvation is then lost. But it does mean you should go quickly to God in repentance. For as long as you hate someone, you bear the marks of an enemy of God. The sooner you go to him and plead the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the better. I'd only add to this that hatred for anyone, Christian or not, is sinful. Here's the fifth one, thefts. The Greek word from which uh, our word theft came was uh, klopei. It might just remind you of the word kleptomaniac, which describes someone addicted to stealing stuff. People generally understand what stealing is, but it's clear most people have blind spots with it. Some of the most honest people in society think nothing of sneaking out of work early. This is an example of how we can steal from our employer. It's not just about taking an object, putting it in your pocket and walking away. Theft comes in many forms. But for the believer, more important than whether they take too long on their dinner hour in work, which is theft, is the issue of stealing from God. How can we possibly steal from God? Well, whenever we receive something good and fail to give God the credit, we rob him of his glory. We should keep in our hearts, as a motto, that verse which tells us that all good things come from our Heavenly Father. The next item on Jesus' list is covetousness. I think most people would have some idea of what this means. They might define it as craving something to the point of obsession. One of the most common ways in which people commit this sin is through an obsession with making money. The love of money has forever been the cause of a multitude of other sinful attitudes and acts. Money's okay. If one of you wanted to give me £100,000 one day, I wouldn't complain. It would help me in many ways. But it wouldn't make us happier in any real sense. If being wealthier did make me happier, it will have exposed a fault in my walk with God. We're meant to be happy with our lot. Covetousness in the believer can show itself in subtle ways. A wife's yearning for a better house. Her husband's daydreams of a flashier car. As with most things, legitimate desires can easily morph into covetousness. 
greatly blessed is that man, that woman, that child who's able to daily thank God for the clothes on their back, the food in their mouth and the roof over their head and be content with that. Number seven is wickedness. Cruelty, violence, bullying. They grieve God. And those who commit such things will not escape punishment unless they receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ. There's wickedness all around us. Like you, I'm disturbed by various types of wickedness. Karen and I spent years campaigning on animal welfare issues, for example. You know, there's animal cruelty all around us. But a more recent phenomenon that uh, grieves us both is bullying in schools, bullying by school children. In this age of technology, most bullying now is not in the schoolyard, but on social media, on the internet. Gangs of wicked boys or girls can target their victim via the internet. It's now, it's just as bad as the type of bullying that took place when I was a kid. Numerous school children just in our country have taken their own lives because they can't tolerate the daily torment from other school children they see on their own mobile phones. The Christian is being wicked when they wish harm on someone. Now, I don't mean you'll necessarily want a person to get hit by a bus or anything, but I know many a Christian has secretly rejoiced at a brother's downfall. It's a mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ that they rejoice when others do well. They may have had a run-in with another Christian in the past, but they rejoice to hear that person's son or daughter has turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. Here's the eighth one. It's deceit. Everyone knows what it is to lie and cheat. The world is just saturated with deceit. It's only in the last few years I've discovered the biggest culprits in our society guilty of deception on a massive scale is the media. I mean by this really the news outlets. We know television daily promotes sin, but if you read the newspapers or watch the news on TV, you should be aware you're exposing yourself to machines of mass propaganda. And remember that this World, this whole system of this world is described in Revelation as the beast intimately connected with Satan. The only way newspapers, for example, can survive is by creating sensation where there is none. And they can only do that by distorting truth. If you're wondering why I'm so confident that that's the case, I, I can tell you that I speak from personal experience. 
my Christian views have led to me being smeared all over the, the papers. So, friends, when the world's mouthpieces speak, the discerning individual should take it all with a pinch of salt, believe it or, or, whether you're a believer or not. On a smaller scale, we can see, we can see this in, in a particular habit of some Christians. They take the words of a fellow believer. One they have, they've had some difference with, some quarrel with, and then they retell those words, but with their own spin, in a certain tone, with a certain emphasis. It's very simple, friends. If you relay something about another person, another Christian especially, with the intention of making them look bad, or, or getting the person you're talking to on your side... You commit several sins, and one of them is deceit. Remember that what you do to a fellow believer, you do to Jesus himself. Here's the ninth one, friends. Lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is one people won't know the meaning of, I expect. It's just not used today, this word. It refers to an inward sensuality or a lust. Uh, don't confuse these things. Sensuality can just mean something that appeals to the senses. So, something that is sensual, if it's, uh, for example, you might class a, a sauna as something sensual. It, it doesn't have to be something sexual, if you see. But this can include uh, old-fashioned lust too. And I think everyone knows what lust is. You probably observed over the past few years there's been this gradual increase in sex on TV. It's not just on on the telly, of course, but in magazines and on the internet. But if if you made a habit of say flicking through the TV channels each evening, you come across all sorts of stuff. The sex scenes that a few years ago would only have been seen on X-rated films, there's nakedness presented as normal. Sexual deviancy now is represented in every new film and drama series. And as society's moral values have gone into rapid decline, it's given the green light to people to express their deepest desires. And chief among them is lust. Lust, like all sin, has no upper limit. A society gradually abandoned by God will continue to push the boundaries of sin. And it's only the mercy of God will contain it. Lust isn't all about sex. If by the grace of God a believer has escaped the temptations of sexual lust, he may still fall into lust for other things. Some may lust for greater luxury and ease in their lifestyle. But they should heed the warning in Revelation, aimed at those enjoying a comfortable lifestyle. They risk becoming independent of God, and Jesus will spit them out of his mouth, as it were. The true warrior in Christ's army should always be ready to suffer in his warfare. Here's the tenth item Jesus gives us. An evil eye.
evil eye. The, the eye part of this, ophthalmos in Greek, gives us obviously our English word ophthalmologist. But this isn't merely about an eye, but an evil eye. And what this describes is envy, bitterness. It's been said, I don't know if this is accurate, jealousy is a desire to hold on to things you have, while envy is about not wanting others to have nice things. If you observe people in society carefully, you'll without doubt see this evil eye. Someone might get a new car. The circumstances may change so they're able to move into a house in a nicer area. They might get promoted in work or graduate from university. Curiously, among those who they regard as friends, there'll often be those who aren't happy about these things. They'll remain friends with the other person for the rest of their lives as long as they perceive them as being at the same level as them. The same social standing, if you like. And friendships can come to an end because one of the parties buys a, a car, for example. Buys a nice new car. I've seen this. And there is envy in the Church of God, of course, for all kinds of things. The one I've chosen as an example is one that perhaps affects pastors more. You have this pastor say, he works hard, he delves into the scriptures, he preaches faithfully, he loves the congregation and he prays for them regularly. And a faithful shepherd of a flock will surely pray for their spiritual revival, that Jesus Christ will be lifted up in their hearts and cause them to glorify God. How would such a man feel if, after many years of hard work with very little spiritual change in the people, he sees another church down the road flourish? The people have become more devoted. New disciples are being added to the number each month. And what's worse, that place is not as theologically sound as his is. It's very easy for one of God's pastors to fall into temptation here. They'll find themselves despising the other congregation and maybe even being angry at God himself for blessing the wrong church. <laughs> no matter what differences of opinion, arguments or whatever I've had with previous churches I've been at or visited, I rejoice to hear God was pouring out his spirit on them. Why would I not want people in this city, in this country, to be more dedicated to God than they've previously been? Why would I not want the name of the Lord Jesus Christ magnified more now than it was this time last year? May God keep me from ever developing this evil eye towards other churches or other pastors, but rather help me to pray earnestly for them. Here's the 11th item on the list, and it's blasphemy. This word has traditionally been used to describe saying bad things about God. Now you might remember 
a few weeks ago, I touched on the issue of blasphemy. I explained it was any type of slander about someone else. You recall I said we weren't to slander God, other people, or even Satan. The average person in our society wouldn't usually blaspheme God in the normal sense of the word. It happens, but it's not common. But it's just as serious, even if it's done indirectly. For example, think about those who promote an anti-Christian worldview. They might promote atheism or naturalistic evolution. In doing this, they declare God is not the creator. If he exists at all, he's a cruel or impotent bystander. Some are more direct. Richard Dawkins, the darling of evolutionism, engaged in a long rant against God in one of his books, calling him a genocidal maniac. Every word, every word a man speaks will be answered for, the Bible says. A believer will rarely be found that outright slanders God. They, they might, it's possible, when under some particularly severe oppression of soul. But if the charge of blasphemy can be levelled against us for slandering others, it won't be nearly as difficult to find culprits within the churches. Gossip is rife, even in the congregation of God. And it's slander because the intention of the one who spreads it is not a holy one. When you spread a rumour, you don't allow the subject to get a chance to explain anything at all. The rumour could even be completely false. Better not to say anything at all. After all, all that you will lose is the sinful thrill you get from gossiping. The next to last one on the list is pride. To be proud is to be maybe stuck up. It could be an inward feeling or it could come out in the things we say or how we dress. The sad truth is society now thinks pride is a good thing. Maybe it's always been that way, I don't know. But today we have groups proclaiming they're proud to be white. Uh, other groups tell us they're proud to be black. Uh, we have pride marches. Pride Month, Pride History Events. People are told to be proud of who they are, as if it's some kind of achievement just being alive. A subtle example we see that permeates all society is parents and grandparents being proud of their children. Now I admit, sometimes... A parent will tell their child, you know, they're proud of them. As an expression, really, of love and support. Really, we should say something else. We should, we should say it in a different way. But when they're talking to other parents about them, about their own children, it so often becomes tied up with outright boasting. When a parent or grandparent rushes over to tell you in detail about a child's exam results. They claim it's just for your information. They're just sharing the good news with you. 
they're happy for their son or daughter and they're sure you will be too. But are they sure? It's just about spreading good news. They're not saying it because of how it reflects well on them and their family, no? Just to be clear, if a non-believer tells me about some achievement by their child or even themselves, I am not going to be impressed. How happy do you think I can be that their kid got into a top university if they're enemies of Jesus Christ? If their grandchild is doing really well for themselves, as they call it, all I'm seeing in the future is an easier path to an eternal hell. Well, Christians aren't quite as likely to engage in this sort of boasting, perhaps. But pride lives in all of us, and its roots are very deep. And it can show itself in a believer in very subtle ways. Imagine someone praying in church, and yet throughout this spiritual exercise, feeling pride at their ability to put together such a a beautiful and well-composed prayer. Think about how a believer might quote scriptures, even telling you the exact chapter and verse and everything, and secretly feel proud at their ability. If unbelievers and believers, parents and grandparents, rich and poor, would truly understand their ability to do anything, or possess anything comes from God if they understood that pride would surely vanish here's the last thing on Jesus' list he gives us it's foolishness so the last one on the list is about stupidity then having no sense it's most Definitely not about any deficiency in intelligence. As I said to you last time, a person's very intelligence is given to them by God. And God dispenses this according to his purpose. The stupidity Jesus speaks of isn't about people who can't spell, who, or who are not good with numbers. This is something due to sin. If wisdom is taking what you know and sensibly applying it to your current situation, stupidity could be thought of as having the same knowledge but deliberately not applying it. I watched a video on the internet a few months, well it was last year, where a lad in his 20s was messing around on a skateboard. Not very dangerous, you might think, except this lad was on the roof of a skyscraper. He was recording his antics on his phone as he did stunts right on the edge of the building. It, it, I'll be honest, it turned my stomach. I couldn't, I couldn't carry on watching it. Such stupidity, I thought. Putting your life on the line for some cheap internet fame. 
What of the Christian? I refer you back to what I said at the beginning today. If the followers of Jesus Christ are unable to apply scriptural knowledge to their situation, they're to expect his rebuke. The disciples were at fault because they'd been learning at the feet of Jesus for a couple of years, yet failed to listen to him properly. In our Bibles, we have more of God's truth than even the disciples did. And we're at fault if, reading the truth, we ignore it or fail to apply it wisely. We become foolish if, like the Pharisees, we get worked up about secondary issues and push the primary ones to one side. And that is Jesus' list finished. He says these things for a reason. In focusing on specific sins, he penetrates the hearts of all unbelievers who hear him and shows how they are full of these things. And it's through evidence of sin a man is brought by the Spirit to Jesus Christ. In some ways, the Christians know different. We enter this world much like everyone else. We were sinners from our mother's wombs. Yet, in the great mercy of God, we were made to be objects of his saving grace through the death of Jesus Christ. Yet, no matter how dormant our sin is now, it's still there, including all those things on Jesus' list. And from time to time, these things enter our thoughts and sins are formed in our mind. And of these, some become fully formed into outright sins. Now, if all your sins make it only to the second stage, you know, in your mind, Jesus says, you're still guilty. You're still guilty of them. And it's for this reason I'd stick my neck out and say, each one of us has committed every sin on that list. God can see our secret thoughts as clearly as if they were played on a widescreen television. Your bad thoughts about other people, your desire for more things, your pride in your achievements, all open to the eye of him who sees all things. Why would Jesus and his messengers think there's any benefit in reminding believers of the existence of sin in them? We're to ask God to help us search our hearts to uncover the sins that lurk within us. Is it to make us feel guilty? Absolutely not. We've been pronounced not guilty by the judge of all the world. Not only does rooting out sin in us help us to stop displeasing our Heavenly Father, but it also reminds us just how much we've been forgiven for. Jesus said that woman who washed his feet with, with her own tears, that her gratefulness was all the more great because she'd been forgiven more. 
She'd been such a sinner. Job asks the question of how anything clean can come from something that is unclean. Friends, it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross by which the clean you became the unclean you. Jesus took on himself your sin. He owned all those seeds of sin within you. He took upon himself all those evil thoughts that have ever formed in your mind. And even when those thoughts are broken out into brazen sin, he requested he be treated as if he committed them. The sins of all his elect people. What a multitude of sins. He was treated as if he had robbed banks. He was treated as if he had been sexually immoral. He was treated as if he had murdered innocent people. All this and much, much more. Wash your heart, God tells the sinner. And by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that sinner realises that to wash his own heart through his own efforts is impossible. He must run to the base of the fountain of the blood of Christ. What love, what love there is in God. Let me conclude by reading a few verses from Ephesians. It's found in the third chapter of Ephesians and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.